Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is getting really into hemp. I'm your host, Amanda. Today, we're going to be talking about all things fabric with my friend and one-time roommate, Janelle. She is a professional weaver and one half of All Roads Design. Before she lived every fashion professional's dream of leaving the industry and doing something super cool and creative, she specialized in fabric sourcing and development for various retailers. So she's the perfect person for us to talk to today. Before we jump into our conversation about fabric, I thought it would be fun to talk about polyester. Oh, Polly... We think of you as something that came and went in the 70s, but alas, you're still around and thriving today. (laughs) Okay, first things first. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Polyester is plastic. It's not even a metaphor. It's the actual truth. In fact, the term polyester refers to a category of plastics formed from a chemical reaction between an acid and an alcohol. And the acids used are usually derived from petroleum, aka fossil fuels. Most polyesters are not biodegradable. And furthermore, their production and later disposal contributes to water, soil, and air pollution across the world. The polyester we use in fabrics is usually polyethylene terephthalate, and I probably totally butchered that pronunciation, but fortunately, they're also known as PET, so we're going to use that acronym for the rest of the episode. If PET sounds familiar to you, that's because 40% of PET produced in the world is used to make plastic bottles, so you've probably seen it on some plastic bottles, right, or read about it when reading about plastics. The remaining 60% of the PET produced is used for fibers, and polyester is used all over the place, from plastic containers to sailcloth to canoes to ropes. It sounds pretty nautical when I say it out loud, right? (laughs) But polyester is also commonly used as a finish to high-quality wood products like pianos and guitars. Basically, it becomes a super shiny finish, and now you're thinking like, oh, yeah, I've seen that, right? But it's kind of weird, right? Because then you're like, wait a minute, the same material is also in our clothes? It's kind of gross, right? I think of polyester as a 60s, 70s thing, and I'm guessing you do too. But it actually first appeared on the scene in 1926 when chemist-slash-inventor Wallace Carruthers discovered that alcohol and carboxyl acids could be mixed to create synthetic fibers. Unfortunately, this early form of polyester was shelved when he realized that the fibers were relatively unstable and, I'm not kidding, could be destroyed by hot water. So, not very useful. He kind of put them aside and instead he focused on his other wonder fabric he was developing, nylon. Thirteen years later, in 1939, John Winfield and James Dixon revisited this idea of polyester. By 1941, they patented PET, which, as we've discussed, is the basis for all polyester fibers. And the same year, they created the first polyester fiber, terylene. Now, this was great timing for the development of so many synthetics like polyester and nylon. During World War II, the Allied powers found themselves in increased need of fibers for parachutes and ropes and other war material. Synthetics were great for this. They were here to fill that void. And you know, as we'll talk about in a little bit, synthetic fibers tend to be waterproof and extremely durable. So this is what you need in battle. This is what you want your parachute to be made of. 
1946, DuPont purchased all of the legal rights to polyester, and in 1950, they produced their first polyester fiber called Dacron, which I've totally seen on labels in vintage clothes. And in 1952, they introduced Mylar, which is the material that balloons and safety blankets are made of. In 1951, Dacron was introduced to the public as a miracle fabric because it never shrunk, lost its shape, or wrinkled, and it lasted forever. We think of polyester exclusively as a 70s fabric, but it actually blew up in 1958. Customers really liked the durability and the ease of the fabric, and, you know, it took color. It was so vibrant. You know, it looked incredible both in magazines and, you know, in real life, like It was just so vibrant. So factories popped up all over the U.S. to begin manufacturing polyester. And business was strong through the 70s, but as the 80s dawned, customers started to stay away from polyester. Honestly, what really killed this fabric was the double-knit version of it, which is what we all think of when we think about polyester. It was super thick. It didn't breathe. It has strange, unpleasant texture. I mean, we're talking like the typical leisure suit fabric. It really began to symbolize cheap clothing, like it wasn't desirable anymore. And so brands and retailers from all price points, from luxury to like, you know, bargain basement, they shifted into natural fibers like cotton, wool, and silk. But what's ironic about all this is, well, okay, studies conducted from 1981 to 1983 showed that more than half of the population cannot distinguish polyester from a natural fabric, but yet we have a distaste for polyester and think it's cheap. Remember, this is an era before we knew the ramifications of polyester. So we were just talking about seeing the fabric or seeing clothes made of it. So you got to take that other, we're super woke about the environment part out of your thinking here. Another company called Hoaxed Fibers Industries conducted a series of touch tests in 1982 where they discovered that 89% of the people tested could not identify polyester when compared with fibers like wool, cotton, silk, and flax. And I mean, I agree. It's really hard. You've got to read the labels. Even more interesting, the people who worked in the mills, so people whose whole lives were centered around making fabric, they couldn't distinguish between some of the fabrics either. And ultimately, further studies concluded that most people either don't care what fiber the garment is made of, or they don't look. And instead, they purchase apparel based on its appearance, color, hand feel, washability. And this makes sense to me because we've seen more and more of the apparel market shift into synthetics in this century. And we talk in the industry more about how the fabric feels to the customer than what it actually is. Of course, now poly has crept back into our life in the form of blends or fully synthetic but thinner. It's also treated differently to adjust the hand feel, to make it lighter. And it can be woven into finer fabrics that feel appropriate for summer. Like they're the right weight and vibe of summer, but they're not going to be breathable. So they're still not the best garment, but they'll feel like they could be. And you could be tricked if you don't read the label. When blended with cotton, which is its buddy, they always appear together these days, polyester improves the shrinkage, durability, and wrinkling profile. Basically, like when we think about cotton t-shirts, we think about shrinking, right? Or losing the shape, just weird wear and not standing up to washing. So 
in the 80s and 90s when the market began to realize that like these poly cotton t-shirts lasted forever. They could be a brighter color. They held onto the printing better. They weren't going to shrink and make a customer unhappy. Like this opened the door for all t-shirts to become a blend. And even now, it's pretty challenging to find a fully 100% cotton t-shirt. Furthermore, Anything that is cotton can be made in polyester or a poly blend. And it kind of creeps into all of the textiles in our lives, not just our clothing. We're talking bedding, towels, curtains, blankets, rugs, upholstery. I mean, it is everywhere. It's probably in dog and cat clothes too. And in general, polyester is great for outdoor use because it's waterproof, you know, because it's plastic. So you'll find it in most outdoor gear and clothing and like snow boots, raincoats, that kind of stuff. While some polyester is still made in the U.S., China is the biggest producer and exporter of polyester, and in fact, it's considered the polyester hub of the world. (laughs) What a distinction. As we've discussed in previous episodes, polyester is cheap. So as long as there's a market for inexpensive clothes and home textiles, polyester is going to be churned out into the world. About 60% of our clothes made today contain synthetics like polyester, nylon, and acrylic. These clothes, and our home textiles, which contain a lot of synthetics as well, shed microplastics while they're being used and worn. So literally, you're walking around in a pair of polyester sweatpants, and they are shedding tiny fibers. Isn't that crazy to think about? Like, Like a little trail behind you. Even worse, they shed a lot of microplastics while they're being washed. These tiny fibers are less than five millimeter in length, so you aren't going to notice them or even miss them. Acrylic textiles are actually the worst offenders, shedding about 700,000 microfibers per wash. That's one time through the washing machine. Polyester comes in second at almost 500,000 microfibers, and polycotton blends, they did the best, I guess, still not great, at 137,000 fibers. Polyester fleece, you know, think of like cozy blankets, pajama pants, hoodies. It's definitely a trend in the winter. Polar fleece, that rings a bell. Those fabrics can shed a million fibers per load. And just to reiterate, these are tiny fibers of plastic. It's not like loose threads, right? I know. We're talking about teeny tiny fibers here. So like no big deal, right? Wrong. A paper in Environmental Science and Technology estimated that a population of 100,000 people would produce approximately one kilogram of fibers each day. If you're American and you don't know the metric system, that's 793 pounds per year of individual teeny tiny plastic shards. That doesn't sound like much to you. How about we do this exercise? There are roughly 300 million people in the United States. So we are sending about 2 million pounds of these microfibers out into the water system every year. Fortunately, a substantial portion are caught in sewage treatment facilities. They have filters that catch them. But it's not all of them. And so what's left is washed out into the ocean by rivers. A 2017 study of microplastic pollution along the shores of the Hudson River in New York State found that the river transports about 150 million plastic microfibers into the Atlantic Ocean every day. And remember, this is with our sophisticated sewage filtration systems. 
in developing countries, they don't have the same level of sewage treatment facilities that we have here in the U.S., so they're not catching as many fibers, so even more are flowing into the ocean. About 35% of the microplastics that enter the ocean come via synthetic textiles. They're plastic, so of course they don't break down. And they're so tiny, there's no way for us to clean them up. There's no pool skimmer that's going to catch them. No like huge earth-sized pool skimmer to catch them. They make their way into our food by being ingested by marine life. I mean, it's just so sad that I don't even know what to say. Yes, we need to buy less synthetic clothes. We need to read the labels and make decisions based on that. And as I always say, we need to buy less clothes in the first place, especially less new clothes. But the washing machine industry also needs to stop up. I bet you didn't think that was coming. (laughs) By adding easily cleaned microplastic filters to washing machines, much like the lint filters we have in our dryers. And this technology already exists. So that's good news, right? In fact, several microplastic catchers exist on the market already, including filters that connect to your washer. So if you own your washing machine, this is a really great idea. If you rent, you know, you may feel a little dodgy about it, but they're not hard to install. If you are a laundromat person or intimidated by, you know, doing work on your washing machine, which I totally understand, there are balls you can throw into the load in the washing machine that catch the fibers and then you just wipe them off and throw the lint, the microfiber lint into the trash. There are also special bags that you can wash your clothes in. So like you could throw just all your poly clothes in there, zip it up, and those bags will catch the microfibers while it's being washed. Nothing is 100% effective, but if they're combined with robust sewage treatment filtration and a decreased consumption of synthetic clothing, we can really turn this around. I'll include a link to some of the home filter options in the show notes. They're pretty reasonably priced. We can do better together, right guys? We've got this. Today, Janelle is going to teach us about some other fabric types, most of which are also man-made, but come from natural sources. So they seem kind of natural and sustainable, but then again, they aren't. I mean, as always, it's super complicated. So let's get into it. Hi, Janelle. Welcome to the show. Hi, Amanda. Thank you. Uh, Before we get into things, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. So I am a weaver now. It's my full-time job. I work for myself, and I've been doing it for seven seven years. Wow. Um, Yeah. I still, most of the time, can't believe that this is my life and that I get to do this sort of thing for a living. Before that, I worked in the fashion industry for 10 years, and I started out in design, working in design as a design assistant, and then I just happened to get into fabric sourcing as a job, and like a lot of your guests that you've had, I didn't know that fabric sourcing was a job. (laughs) (laughs) It's everyone, everyone I've interviewed so far. (laughs) They just don't teach you a lot in fashion design school. No, definitely not. When I started working in the fashion industry, I was working in, I got a job in denim, like designing denim jeans. And it it wasn't a goal. It just, that's what happened. I moved to New York and got whatever job I could. And with denim, 
it is, it's obviously all about the fabric. And so you may just be designing, it may be the same silhouette all the time, but the fabrics change. And so that's when I started to learn about the complexities of fabric sourcing and how you want to have a fabric that can, can do a wide range of things, but be like a really versatile fabric. And got, it just got me interested in it. And so then I, I moved and got a job at this company and it was a fabric position and they wanted someone who had experience in denim. They had never designed their own in-house denim before. Wow. So that made me look good or whatever, you know, I was desirable to them because I had denim experience. <laughs> I, yeah, I got that job. Right. And also like some of your guests, I had no idea what I was doing. in that job, I was just thrown into it. And I remember on my first day, they, they're like, okay, call this mill and ask them for fabric options. And (laughs) I was like, so terrified to pick up the phone and call. I had no idea what to ask for, but (laughs) the mills are really great. Like all the people that work in the mills, the, the mill reps are always really helpful. So yeah, I just learned as I went. So then worked at that job, left to move to LA to work for another company. And that's when I started weaving as a hobby, mm-hmm. doing it in the mornings before work and in the evenings when I got home, completely obsessed. And my weaving experience before, I'm just self-taught. I, I took a little bit of textile survey class in college, but everything else that I do, I've just learned along the way on my own. It was a really, I guess, magical time when when Instagram had just started and (laughs) people still looked at blogs and Tumblr and Pinterest and my work got out there a lot really fast. It did. Yeah. It got a lot of attention and pretty soon I had some really big companies contacting me to do commissions for them. And I'm like not allowed to talk about those companies. (laughs) (laughs) They had to sign an NDA. So I called out sick on a Friday, (laughs) went to New York, had a meeting with a client, got the deposit, came back to work on Monday and gave my two weeks notice. And that was the happiest, the happiest day of my life. Cause pretty much since I started working in the industry, I was not happy and I wanted to get back to making things with my hands because that's what I did in fashion school, sewing and you know, Mm -hmm. knitting everything with my hands. So yeah, it was always a goal of mine to leave the industry, but I had no idea what that would look like or how I was going to do that. So that's my story about (laughs) that. And now I've been weaving (laughs) for seven years. Most of my work is commissioned and it varies. I do projects for interior designers and architects that will hang on people's walls like art. Mm -hmm. And I also Mm -hmm. do a lot of I've done a lot of collaborations over the years with fashion companies where I might weave some specialty items that they'll incorporate in their line. And then I also, for the past six years, have been licensing my designs to anthropology. I weave prototypes Mm -hmm. and then they do the production on them, but it's for home textiles. So pillows, rugs, we do furniture as well. And that is really exciting because I, I could never do that scale of production on my own. And it's fun to collaborate with their design team and see how they 
see my textiles being used. And it turns into something that I could have never come to on my own. Right. I mean, that's cool. I think we, we should probably mention that your company is All Roads. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> it's called All Roads. And um, yeah, so in a way, I'm still working in textiles. I am not doing the fabric sourcing that I was. But all of those skills that I learned working for companies has been so beneficial to me now, especially, I mean, in so many ways, but even on the production end, because now I'm working with very small artisanal weaving workshops, like in India, and it's very easy for me to, to figure out that relationship and how to work with that. So I'm really glad that I have all that experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's so cool. I mean, you're like living every designer's dream right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it looks pretty good on the gram. <laughs> it does. It does. But, you know. <laughs> well, so, I mean, you mentioned that you were just like not that happy working in the fashion industry. Like, what do you what do you think of the industry as a whole now? Okay, so when I left working in an office, a fashion office, like When you work in that sort of environment, you are certainly swept away with buying Uh new things with the trends, you know, what trends are coming. And so you're already onto the next thing and you're over the old thing. Once I left that environment, which I didn't realize how influential and I guess toxic that was, my perspective completely changed and I didn't need to buy stuff anymore. No, I think that's so true. I think about this phenomenon a lot that when, you know, I I thought maybe it was just applying to people and buying, but it must be everyone where you're constantly exposed to trends, trends, trends well before they exist. And you're filled with this desire of things all the time. And so I feel like the people who shop the most are people who work in the industry. I agree. It's like you never have enough. Yeah. And it's almost encouraged. Totally. I mean, when you're designing something, you're designing a year out and you're already like, oh my God, I want this thing right now. But then by the time it comes out in the store and you're allowed to buy it, you're like, um, over that. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Don't want that anymore. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's tired to you. Well, today we're going to talk about fabrics and because you're an expert and I think there's a lot of confusion out there about fabrics. Part of making the right decisions when you're shopping is understanding what the content labels mean. But I mean, unless you're an expert in fabric, it's really, really confusing. And it's hard to know which fabric is best, what's synthetic or natural. So I thought we could decode some of these fabrics together. Before I started, I wanted to talk some not so fun facts about fabric as a whole. So I want to preface by saying neither synthetic nor natural is truly better than the other as long as we're buying tons of clothing and throwing them out. And in fact, six out of 10 garments are either burned or buried, meaning in the landfill, within the year they are produced, which that's 60%. That's disgusting. Yeah. It's like funny when you go down these rabbit holes and you're like, oh yeah, this is so obvious. But something that had not occurred to me is that in landfills, there's other stuff there too, right? And (laughs) everything is buried under literally tons of other garbage. So being deep within a mountain of trash can affect how things break down if they break down at all. So yeah, synthetics, they take hundreds of years to break down in a landfill. And along the way, they release dangerous chemicals. 
And the mere fact of being in a landfill underneath a bunch of garbage slows this degradation down even further because synthetics need the magic of the sun to break it down. So they're just lingering. So you're like, oh, well, that's – I get it. Okay, well, I'll buy natural fabrics from now on like cotton or linen and wool. But they actually don't biodegrade properly either in a landfill because you know they're buried under tons of trash. So normally these fabrics will need oxygen to break down properly. But when they're buried deep within this trash mountain, they are deprived of that. So they break down anaerobically, which if you remember from biology class means without oxygen, over a much longer period of time. And during this period, they release greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane, along with really scary toxic gases like ammonia and hydrogen sulfide. And these gases can cause rando fires. I don't know if you've ever driven by a landfill and noticed that there were random parts on fire. (laughs) I've I've done that. (laughs) (laughs) It also leads to air pollution and most importantly, health issues like asthma and cancer for residents of nearby areas. And then there are also chemicals that are used to treat the clothing. Dyes are one chemical that are used frequently on clothing, right? But there are also anti-flammability chemicals uh, that leach out of the garments into the ground. Heavy Mm -hmm. rain can cause a flow of these chemicals into nearby water supplies and soil. So then I was like, oh, you know, what happens when you burn synthetics? I knew it wasn't good. You know, if you've ever been camping and someone at a site nearby decides to throw some styrofoam on the fire, which seems seems to happen a lot more than I would like when I'm camping, uh, you know that gross chemical smell. So I knew it wasn't good. But then I found a terrifying article from the U.S. Department of Defense. The Marine Corps is forbidding Marines stationed in the Middle East from wearing synthetic athletic clothing from Under Armour, Nike, and Coolmax because the fabrics melt when they're exposed to high heat. Here's a really disturbing quote. When exposed to extreme heat and flames, clothing containing some synthetic materials like polyester will melt and confuse to the skin. This essentially creates a second skin and can lead to horrific disfiguring burns. Like, no shit. (laughs) Right? And this can happen when near an explosion or a fire caused by an IED. And you're, you're probably asking yourself, but like, aren't Marines wearing uniforms? And yes, that's true. But they're wearing these pieces under the clothing because the wicking abilities of the fabric keep them cool. Although you and I know that they're not really wicking anything. <laughs> they're just sort right. of suffocating your skin. So burning synthetics and really any clothing releases greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, obviously, just like burning anything. But burning synthetics also releases microplastics into the atmosphere where they kind of Mm -hmm. end up scattered across the world. It also results in the release of toxic metals such as lead and mercury, dioxins, furans, I don't even know what that is, acid gases, and other toxic substances to the air, water, and soil. And fabrics that are treated with flame retardants, like all children's pajamas are, mm-hmm. are, are totally a menace to society. Firefight- yeah. Firefighters have spoken out against the use of them because they don't really work the way they're supposed to. They just end up releasing toxic fumes when burned that are far more likely to kill you than the fire itself. And isn't that crazy? Like yeah. all children's pajamas are coated with that. Yeah. Drapery. Yeah, totally. Drapery. Most things in hotels. Like anything that's hanging on the wall in a hotel, that's fabric. When I do commission woven pieces for commercial properties like hotels and restaurants, they often require me to apply the flame retardant to them. Wow. How do you do that? I take it to a place that does it. They spray it down. They they do all the drapes for like theater 
and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, but it's very toxic. And I, it also breaks down the fiber quicker. Oh, interesting. Like over time. I bet it smells really bad too. It doesn't. I, I mean, I don't, well, I don't smell it wet, but there's no smell on it afterwards. I mean, they, they hose the, it's just like they hose it down. Wow. I had no idea that even things that hung on the wall. I mean, it makes sense, mm-hmm. you know, for, in, for mm-hmm. insurance purposes. Yes. Yeah. You get a fire certificate when you get that done and then you have to show the fire inspector who comes and inspects the commercial property and they want to see the certificates on file. Wow. So this is like even more widespread than I knew. <laughs> so we all assume that cotton clothing is best, but actually cotton is problematic too. It's considered the world's dirtiest crop because it uses 16% of the world's pesticides and it uses a ton of water. Once again, if we could rein in our clothing consumption, then this wouldn't be as horrific as it is. But unfortunately, we're also wearing a ton of cotton things three times and throwing them out. And cotton is treated with some pretty terrifying stuff. Some of these chemicals include silicone waxes, petroleum scours, softeners, heavy metals, the aforementioned flame retardants, ammonia, and formaldehyde. And body heat and sweating actually accelerate the absorption of these residues into your skin. I mean, this is so gross. Ick. That's disgusting. It's so disgusting. It makes me want to become a nudist. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to harvest all of Janelle's fabric knowledge now so that we can make better decisions down the road. Although, as with everything, it's really complicated. So yeah, let's talk about rayon because rayon has always, at least in my lifetime, been touted as this wonder fabric. <laughs> So like what is rayon and there are are there different types of rayon? Yes, so rayon classifies a type of fabric that is man-made but it is made from tree pulp, wood pulp. So the wood pulp gets ground up. Okay. Goes through kind of like extruders which creates a long single fibers or like just imagine it like a single yarn, okay? And then that's spun or twisted into yarns. Cotton is a short staple fiber where, where you could see it might be like two inches long, but rayon and these synth- synthetically made fibers are just like infinity long. They're just endless. So in that way, there's like a strong fiber because you're not going to have breakage where the yarns are spun. Mm-hmm. And there's many types of rayons I mean, your labels might say rayon, lyocell, viscose, cupro. It could even say bamboo, tencel, and modal. So we'll just go into rayon because that's the overarching fiber, including all of these. It became popular in the 1920s as a silk substitute, which I guess was partly when the U.S. textile industry, which was huge, mostly cotton, left you know, around the 1920s. And it was discovered that it was actually cheaper to produce this fake fiber than it was to use wool, cotton, or real silk. Fewer workers harvesting, growing. And then, of course, it was obviously cheaper than silk, about 50% cheaper than silk during the 1920s. It was first used for men's socks, but then later for lingerie-like stockings. The way that it's processed, it's it's like you were describing before, it's all made with chemicals, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So then we'll get into lyocell, which is a type of rayon. And it's actually like a brand name. Well, Tencel is the brand name. So lyocell is a rayon form. Mm-hmm. Tencel, 
which you will see on clothing labels, and it probably has like a trademark or something next to it, is the brand name of Lyocell. So there's a company in Austria mm-hmm. called Lenzine, and they make Tencel. And I have sourced Tencel before, you know, in the past when I worked for companies, and I do feel like it was pricey, but that's what you get for a brand name item, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the same kind of thing. It's a cellulose fiber, which means plant. They dissolve the wood pulp and use a special drying process. It's called spinning. Before it's dried, wood chips are mixed in with a solvent. <laughs> I mean, it's just like you're making a recipe. I mean, it's so labor intensive. It's so labor intensive. And you can just imagine how big these factories are that create yeah. this fiber. So because Tencel is a branded fiber only lensing makes it they like have some pretty strong claims that it is much more ethical than just a regular rayon or a lyocell and i'm kind of believe it i mean it's kind of hard once you start researching all this stuff it's really hard to know what to believe mm-hmm. but here's some facts about tencel it has incredible absorption 50 percent more absorbent than cotton and mm-hmm. there it's a breathable fiber less susceptible to bacteria growth. So that means that it's going to be really good for active wear. Mm-hmm. And using it for active wear, you're probably not going to find like 100% Tencel yoga pants. It's going to be mixed with a stretchy fabric. Right, right. Because Tencel isn't stretchy. Well, I guess if it's knitted, it would be. But okay. yeah, it's not like a stretchy, it's not a stretchy yarn. Um, okay. So, but with the case with most textiles, tensile production has both negative and positive impacts on the environment. I mean, it is made from plants. And so that's good because it's not made from plastic. Right. I mean, do they cut down trees specifically to make it, or is it like extra leftover <laughs> trees from other projects or, you know. Well, London says that it sources its wood and pulp from certified and controlled substances like sustainably managed plantation. So, okay. I mean, I guess technically Tencel could be made from bamboo, which bamboo is super sustainable. Within four years, it can mm-hmm. be harvested. Doesn't require like a lot of water or pesticides. So hopefully lensing is using the right kind of wood. <laughs> right, right. And because right. they do have so much information about their products, like I don't, and, and they've been around for a long time. So I think it's pretty legit. They're also able to control just the whole production process. So they say that it requires a lot less dye than cotton, which is great because most conventional dyes are really harmful to the environment and use a lot of water. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. They have acknowledged, Lensing has acknowledged that the main concern is the use of energy during production. So they're trying to work on it, maybe with renewable energy sources at their plants or something like that. So, I mean, we're going to go on with a a few more rayon examples, but after really breaking down all the different rayons, I feel like I'm mostly a tensile fan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it sounds pretty good. It's still crazy, of course, because, you know, it does have to be manufactured and it sounds really labor intensive. So you were saying that 
Tencel is like the brand name. So does that mean that there are generic brand Lyocells out there? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, it would just be Lyocell, like anybody, maybe any mill or, you know, yarn producer could say, we're going to make Lyocell and it would just say Lyocell on the tag. Mm -hmm. And the way that they make it, I guess could be, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be regulated on how they make it or if it's just an end use description. Yeah. I wonder too, I'm going to have to look into that Yeah, because often generic brand versions of things are similar, but not always the same. And if they weren't maybe as like environmentally focused as lensing seems to be, then it might be best to just opt for things that say Tencel on them. And yeah, if you can. Tencel garments are a little bit more expensive. I've noticed that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you get what you pay for. Exactly. I think in the past where I worked for a brand and and I may shown them some Tencel fabrics, we may have had to source just the Lyocell version because we couldn't <laughs> afford it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. So Modal is another fiber content that you may see on labels. And that is also produced by Lensing. It's very similar to Tencel, but mm -hmm. it's another brand brand name type of rayon. Mm -hmm. So Cupro, have you heard of Cupro? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if, is Cupro like another brand name? Because I've literally seen things on different websites. Like Cupro is part of the product yeah. name. Like it's premium. They're like, they're like marketing Cupro. Yeah. I feel like it goes in and out, but like, I don't know. I feel like maybe in the past year or two, I've seen Cupro and I'm just like, you guys, it's rayon. <laughs> I know. Well, I see. This is why it's so confusing because you think rayon is rayon and all these other things are different things, but it turns out everything is rayon. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the whole, cupro is actually short for cuprimonium rayon. Oh, wow. Catchy. Yeah. Super chemically. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> to produce it, they have to use large quantities of copper, ammonia, caustic soda, which, I mean, all of those are super toxic. And then we don't even know if they're disposing them properly. Right. But still, where do they really go? I mean, yeah. Where do they like, go? That's a really good point. Just in a drum behind the factory? Yeah. I doubt it. <laughs> in a river or... <laughs> yeah, they're going somewhere and it's not good. Exactly. I mean, I remember 15 plus years ago when I was first working in denim. I mean, it was a big deal that factories, denim factories who have large wash facilities for denim, they were just dumping all that water in rivers. Oh, yeah. And rivers were turning blue. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think now it's hopefully, you know, it's more regulated, but I'm sure it still happens. It definitely still happens. I, I did a denim episode a few weeks ago. There's been a lot of testing of the water around the primary denim cities in China, and it's it's really bad. Mexico, too. It was really bad in Mexico. And to not dump into another water source, that means that the factory is going to have to build and create a water recycling facility on, this, on location. And I worked for this mill, this yarn mill in China a few years ago, and they they were really high end and they did have a water recycling area. Wow. Yeah, I saw it. But once again, that would drive up costs, you know, like people would have to pay more for their clothing in order to fund that. Mm -hmm. It was a cashmere yarn mill. Though. There you go. Fancy. It was fancy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So anyway, back to cupro, um, like all these rayons, it's often blended with other, other fibers. So you may have like cupro with some sort of stretchy spandex or even like cotton. Um, I remember there was a time when cupro was popular again, like, you know, 12, 10 years ago. And I think they were blending it with cotton. So you might see like a 50, 50 or 45, 55 blend and they were using it for pants. Mm-hmm. So more of like a structured kind of maybe cargo, but loose mm-hmm. kind of comfy pant. So here are some drawbacks of Cupro that I found out. You know, it is a silk substitute, but it's nothing like <laughs> silk. It, <laughs> yeah, it ignites easily at temperatures above 180 degrees. So if you were like standing by a campfire or grilling, <laughs> you might melt. Yeah, oh, it Lord. does char when ignited. Oh my God. And this is gross, but I read that it leaves a, behind a residue containing significant concentrations of copper. Oh. It cannot be washed in hot water. It does not burn cleanly back to, uh, like, yeah, how it chars. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty inexpensive to make because it may use, like, a lot of recycled waste plant fibers to make it. So I think in that way, the mills may just be like making tons of it because it's so inexpensive. There's not really any consequences for them financially. What does the hand feel like? Like, is it silky? Yeah, it's silky. I mean, all the rayons like like Tencel and Lyocell, Cupro. Cupro is also a Bemberg. Like Bemberg is, I guess, the, the version that's made in Japan. They're heavy. It's not like a silk a lightweight silk dress, but it has nice drape. I mean, Tencel mm-hmm. and Lyocell type fabrics are really nice to wear. They're kind of cool in the summer. They're good for hot places. They're good for like, you know, flowy tops, skirts, dresses. I was thinking the other day about how in like, at least on my end as a buyer, we rarely in design meetings ever talk about the fabric content of anything anymore. We used to, and we would get a lot of information around that. Mm. And now the focus is just always on the hand feel. That's it. It's like, oh, this feels mm. really yummy, or this is cozy, or this is silky, or this feels light. And so even as a buyer, I'm not really being looped into the kind of fabrics that are being used. And I feel right. like, I mean, not to go all like conspiracy, but I do feel like that's intentional that that retailers are saying, you know, in order to cut costs, we just need to sell the idea of the fabric and not a specific fabric. I agree. Um, I mean, synthetics have certainly come a long way where the hand feel can really mimic the real thing, whether it's like a poly or acrylic in place of a wool or a rayon in place of a silk. And also once the garments are sewn, they may go through a wash process where they're washing it down, you know, to make it softer. So for most people, doesn't it doesn't matter what the fiber content is. It's all about how soft it is and how it feels. So yeah, I agree with that. Content doesn't even have to be discussed anymore. No, I mean, it never is. It's just like, this is cozy. This is, this feels silky mm-hmm. or this feels expensive. That's something I hear a lot. This feels expensive. And then you know, it's not <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so gross. Or like, I've also 
been in meetings where they passed around the fabric card and it's practically giving you paper cuts because it's so stiff <laughs> and it's like, okay, we're going to wash this down. But, right. but it's not washing in the way that we think where it's just getting thrown in a washing machine with some detergent. Like we're talking a chemical treatment. Yeah. Enzymes could have enzymes in the wash and softeners. And those are all just to break down. Well, like you, when you were describing about all the chemicals and kind of additives that cotton might have sizing agents, like all that stuff has to be washed off after the garment is made. And mm-hmm. I mean, the wash, the wash process is, is almost as equally as important to the fabric, depending on what it is. I mean, certainly for denim and casual wear, it's so important, like recipes. So you might like this hand feel and it's like, okay, that's a 15 minute wash with enzyme plus softener. And, but this garment is washed for 45 minutes and it's a totally different. And so that's also through the fabric R and D process is the wash designing, I guess, the wash process, wet processing. It's called wet processing. So literally it's going to be washed with water. I mean, and something Mm -hmm. else. It's like a wash cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But massive. So interesting. Massive. Yeah. Like a big washer. A big washer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's so crazy. I didn't know that. Okay. Well, so how about some like natural fabrics? As I said earlier, they're not necessarily better. They're just different. Like what about bamboo? Well, bamboo sounds really great, right? Like you yeah. know that it grows, yeah, it, does. it grows really fast. So you're like, okay, that's going to be sustainable. But bamboo is really just, it's a rayon. It's processed the same way. It It's processed with a ton of chemicals. And you know, when I was researching bamboo, it actually seemed to be the most controversial. Like the FTC has busted companies for like labeling things as bamboo when they weren't bamboo, they were actually just rayon, which no way. I mean, again, a bamboo is rayon, it's bamboo rayon, but these big companies like JCPenney's Nordstrom, they got in trouble for labeling their things incorrectly. And when I first was reading about bamboo, I did read in a couple of places that it's a positive aspect of it is that it's antimicrobial. It kills bacteria. And mm-hmm. that's why people like to use it for activewear. However, the FTC has said that rayon or bamboo rayon does not retain any of the antimicrobial properties because it's all eliminated during the manufacturing process with all those chemicals. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, they're basically breaking it down and starting over again. Totally. And, you know, also like you talked about in the beginning of the episode, most things are not going to biodegrade fast, but certainly bamboo ran is not going to biodegrade fast also because of just the chemicals in there. I wrote in my notes, it's kind of a catfish fiber. Like <laughs> like you get catfished by bamboo. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I've definitely, I mean, I can't tell you how many brands I've gone to see and they're like, oh, and check out our new sustainable collection. It's all bamboo, like over and over again. It's obviously greenwashing. Totally. These sales reps don't know that they're deceiving me because they don't know either. Yeah. I feel like this, this is like hidden knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that also brings me to the next fiber that I wanted to talk about, which is recycled plastic bottles. Ugh, I yeah. already am grossed out by I it. Mean, who wants to wear a plastic bottle? But <laughs> I guess it was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so, I went to a denim mill 
And they were showing me this new denim that they were making with recycled plastic bottles. And they didn't even change the color at that point. Like the green denim, there was green denim that was from the Sprite bottle. And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you can just imagine all the other colors. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I don't know, at the time I was like, "Eh, that's like, I don't know. I still think it's plastic. It's not that great. And what did it feel like? Well, it felt, I don't know, you know, cause I was feeling it like raw. So unwashed. So it was stiff. And uh-huh. then, you know, they go through a heavy wash process so they can kind of make it feel like pretty good. Mm-hmm. But recently, okay. Cause I've been on this like sweat pant hunt, like, <laughs> like, like everyone, everyone else. else and everybody's sold <laughs> yeah. out. And so now I'm getting all these ads on my Instagram. And I think that some activewear brand popped up on my feed and it was like, you know, bike shorts made out of recycled plastic bottles. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is back. Like, or this is getting popular now. I just couldn't believe it. And but it's it sounds like a yeast infection <laughs> waiting to happen. Yeah. I'm sorry. That is gross. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, it's still plastic. It's still going to make you sweat. It is still going to leach microplastics into the water supply. And it's just you're not going to your body's not going to be able to breathe in it. I also read that because those plastic bottles have BPAs in them, it can actually leach through your skin when you're wearing Ugh. it. So I don't know. Recycled Ugh. plastic bottles fabric may seem like you're doing a good thing because you're recycling this post-consumer waste, but in a way you're still supporting the plastic bottle industry, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you are. And, you know, I would say the best thing you could do for the world is not buy recycled plastic leggings, but to just not buy plastic bottles. Yeah. You know, that's where that really starts because there's an extreme amount of energy and processing going into converting these plastic bottles into clothing in the first place. So this doesn't right all the wrongs of the world. Absolutely, You still just need to bring a reusable water bottle with you everywhere you go. It's way more important. And I'm just plastic clothes. It sounds disgusting. Yeah. Don't do it. That's not something I want to exercise in at all. No, it makes me feel so sweaty just thinking about it. Yeah. (laughs) It's so gross. You know, after a couple of your episodes ago, like I went through all my t-shirts and I actually pulled out a few vintage t-shirts that I had that were a poly cotton blend. And I, mm-hmm. I'm just going to use them as rags now because I was like, you know what? These do make me sweat every time I wear them. They make me feel different yeah. than my other t-shirts. And even though they're vintage, I bought them at yard sales. I was like, this is going to be a rag now. <laughs> totally. I've been going through the same exercise. I just cleaned out my drawer. You know, in the early aughts, I worked as a sales associate for a retail company that you know, and <laughs> I folded a ton, a ton, a ton of t-shirts. I mean, we sold t-shirts like they were going out of style with witty sayings on them or just blank, and they were all a poly cotton blend. You know, mm-hmm. and I would buy the plain ones with my discounts where to work, and they would make me smell like something I can't even describe, (laughs) but it just wasn't good. It was like sort of like a skunk, but not exactly like oniony skunk. I don't know. And I, that always put a bad taste in my mouth about that kind of blend, but there's, they're still out there. I see them all the time. And some of those poly cotton blend t-shirts pill. That's what I was going to say. They would pill like instantly one wash in. 
mm-hmm. super pilly. I, I there's just no reason for them except that they're cheap. Yeah, I'm, and that's it. And they hold their color really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But otherwise, they're they're yeah. gross. I can like close my eyes and think of the way one of those pilly t-shirts feels. It's just disgusting. <laughs> it's just like not made to last. Like a lot of these things. No, I mean, it's a problem when like you bought your cheap clothes from Forever 21, but you have to like hand wash them and hang them dry to take care of exactly, them. Exactly, exactly. Like the amount of things from Forever 21 or comparable retails that say dry clean only. <laughs> I'm like, if you're buying all your clothes at Forever 21, you're not dry cleaning. No, you're not. And dry cleaning is its own bad news. Yeah. Dry cleaning is very bad. Very, very bad. I was doing a research project for a client about dry cleaning. And uh, if one drop of the dry cleaning chemicals gets on the floor, it absorbs immediately into the soil beneath the building. And yeah, so you will often see places where dry cleaners used to be just sitting empty. And that's because it's way too expensive to buy that land and try to fix it. Right. Uh, I can picture there's this laundromat slash dry cleaner in Portland that's been closed for easily 10, 15 years and no one's, it just sits there empty. It's fenced off for that reason. Yeah. Never rent an apartment over a dry cleaner. Oh, do you know anyone who's done that? No, but I just (laughs) just know that you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that. Nowhere near. I mean, I try to avoid dry cleaning at all costs. I will. Yeah, I think most things you can just get away with hand washing, even though it says. Mm -hmm. I think so too. It's a scam. Totally. <laughs> totally hand wash and hang dry. Yes, absolutely. So, okay, what about lycra? Because that's another one that's like in everything. Totally. So lycra is a nut is another branded fiber. It is created by DuPont Company. You know, they make like chemicals. <laughs> yeah, I think they made Agent Orange or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so lycra is just like is the brand name of spandex. Spandex is the generic name. And ah, okay. they're the same, spandex, lycra, or elastane. And it's a fiber that was made by a chemist, and it's for to add stretch to your clothes. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty hard to get away from spandex because it's going to be in your underwear, your bra, your socks. I hate that there's always a stretch content in women's jeans. I hate it. It's like 2% stretch, like... I thought we were getting over that, but it's still there. Like everybody likes one or 2% stretch because it gives a little bit, but I think Mm -hmm. that it like, it loses the shape of the garment quicker. Mm -hmm. You know, then you've got a, your pants are all stretched out and you have to wash them to get them back into shape. You're washing them constantly. And then of course that's shedding microplastics into your water supply. So it's just, it's just bad all the way around, but it is true in all of the places I've worked the denim with the elastin has sold consistently well better than the rigid. Yeah. Always. Lower return rate. It's more forgiving. But it's just gross because you're constantly washing it. Yeah. You like, can't wear a stretchy pair of jeans more than once. No. You have like to wash the them. knees bag out or mm-hmm. the waist yeah. is too big. I mean, there are smaller brands in the past 10 years that are doing women's jeans and pants without stretch content. So you can find them. And good thing about those is most of them are all made in the U.S. So it's like a, you're supporting a smaller smaller company. So can we talk about hemp? Yes, because this is another one that when I see a brand and they're like, check out our new sustainable line, there's hemp. Yeah. So hemp is like pretty awesome. And I couldn't really find 
anything bad about hemp. Hemp, man. Yeah. And actually, I weave a lot with hemp, like raw hemp fiber. Um, it's unspun. It comes in like just like a box. It's not, it's not yarn. It's just like the fiber and it smells like a farm. <laughs> and, uh, I don't necessarily use it because it's so sustainable and amazing, but I use it really because I love the aesthetic of it. It's, I mean, it's something completely different than apparel, but, um, the more that I'm learning about hemp, I'm like, Oh my God, it, I actually am so happy that I am using it. So, um, I mean, most people are familiar with hemp, but <laughs> <laughs> there are some myths that we will uh, dispel here. So hemp, I mean, everybody knows like what the cannabis plant looks like. And I don't know if you know where the hemp fiber comes from on that plant. I don't. Do I guess the, the stem or something. Yeah, it's the stalk. So the inside stalk, okay. the stalk is like all these long fibers and which is the same way as linen linen is Mm -hmm. it's processed the same way so all those fibers inside the stalk they're longer in length than cotton and so that's a good thing because the longer the length of the fiber the stronger the fiber is if the fiber is short it's going to be prone to breakage okay Mm -hmm. so hemp is three times stronger than cotton wow in back in like the birth of our nation, America, they were using hemp for making ropes um, mm-hmm. for like ships and stuff. So it's right. really, really strong and it lasts a really long time. If we, t- we talked about like doing the wash process on garments. So maybe if the garment doesn't have any wash process, it can be rough at first compared to cotton, but I mean, the benefit of hemp is that the more you wear it and wash it, the better it gets, which is like mm-hmm. anything that is made well, like the, the better it gets with more use. So, um, mm-hmm. you can also blend it with cotton. So you can do like a 55 hemp, 45 cotton or a 70 cotton, 30 hemp. If you want something a little more lightweight, it is naturally mm-hmm. resistant to mold it's super porous, so it uh, is very water absorbent, and it will retain dye and color better than any fabric, including cotton, apparently. Um, it's better insulating than cotton, and just to stray from apparel, it has been used for building homes. They do like hemp bale houses. Wow. Yeah. And it's also naturally pest resistant. So that eliminates the needs for pesticides while growing, which is great for the environment. And apparently it requires no irrigation, which is amazing. So why isn't everything made of hemp? Exactly. Just to set the record straight, hemp is non-narcotic, meaning it contains such little THC that you're not going to get high if you wear it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also really fast growing. So that's great. It's sustainable and it can produce more fiber yield per acre than any other source. So it can produce 250% more fiber than cotton and 600% more fiber than flax, which is linen using the same amount of land. Mm -hmm. So the land use is much less. And it's super versatile. They use it for apparel, accessory shoes, furniture, home furnishings. And maybe 
seven years ago, I was introduced to this company called Young Maven and their company out of Mm -hmm. California. And back then the owner, I think his name's Robert. He was like, I want everyone to wear a shirt or hemp shirt by 2020. So it's 2020. I don't know if he wants to update his vision plan, but um, (laughs) I mean, his brand has grown a lot and he does really great styles. I mean, I I was trying to buy some hemp sweatpants from him, but they're all sold out. But I have a friend who I just saw yesterday who's like, every time I see him, he mentions his Young Maven t-shirts. And I'm like, I know you told me. No, they are. They are the best t-shirts though. I get it. And they come in a wide variety of colors Mm -hmm. and cuts and they last forever and they're not going to pill on you. Yeah. And the content, you know, like he really likes the 7030 because it's super lightweight and it washes down really nicely. It's a 70 cotton, 30 hemp. So yeah, their website anyway has a lot of really Mm -hmm. good information about the benefits of hemp. And then there's two sites that I actually buy hemp from. One is hemptraders.com and one is hempbasics.com. And they sell hemp in lots of forms like fiber, like I get it, or also rope. And some of them also have garments where it's just kind of like undyed hemp garments. All those sites have a lot of really good information on it, on, on hemp and the benefits. So I don't know. I wasn't able to find any downsides to hemp. There you go. Not that we should all go yeah. out and buy a thousand hemp clothes and throw them away either, but... No, we should not. We should, we should not. But if you, you know, I guess it would be like if your favorite t-shirt finally bit the test and you're like, hmm, I'm going to go buy a new pack of Hanes, like maybe not do that and buy one nice hemp t-shirt. Totally. Exactly. That's yeah. very good advice. <laughs> okay, so we're going to switch directions a little bit and we're actually going to talk about what it means to source and direct R&D for fabric and trims because I know that's what you've done. And also for me, it's not a job I ever knew existed until I knew you and you had that job. So, so I thought we could just talk a little bit about what that is. Like, what is the process for sourcing fabric? Okay, so there are fabric shows that you attend and they're typically twice a year. There's a big one in New York. There's a smaller one in LA and the really big one, there's two in Paris. They're twice a year Mm -hmm. and you're going to go, you know, in spring and fall and walk the show. It's a really good place to go. If you have no relationship with fabric meals, Um, like maybe you just started your job or maybe you just started at a new company. And so you can walk around the show. Even if you're not a fabric sourcing person, you can still go to the show. And it's a good place to see all the current fabric trends because there are fabrics that stay the same every season and throughout the years. But then you'll, you'll see these new fabric trends. And so walking the shows is a really good way to identify the trends, and also to learn what the different mills make because each mill is going to have their own specialty. And Mm -hmm. so go to the fabric show, you sit down, they show you all their fabrics, and you just select the ones that you think are right for the brand. And also as a fabric person, you have to think like a designer. So you have to think, is this fabric appropriate for pants or a a top. Mm -hmm. And so it helps to understand when you look at a fabric, how it's going to drape. And so you want to select fabrics that 
are right for the brand, but that are also appropriate for the end use. And that will also inspire the designers. And that also you may not already have, you know, in your collection. So Mm -hmm. a couple weeks later, the mill sends you a big package. And then at that time, you can just present all the new fabrics to the design team. And then you're going to file them in your library. A really uh, good fabric library is useful because even though you may show the new fabrics, the design team may come to you a month later and be like, oh my gosh, I'm looking for this like really nice cotton poplin. Do you have anything? So you're going to want to go through your fabric library and pull them something that they could use. Once the designer picks the fabrics that they like, then you should email the mill and ask them for the current price because the price can change all the time. You also want to check if they still make it because a lot of times fabrics get get discontinued if they don't really have popularity. And then you should also go ahead and ask the mill if they have any sample yardage, which is just a few yards in any color that they have available that they can send you right away because the designer is going to want to sew up just a quick garment in that fabric to save to see if they even like it. They may sew it up and yeah, it may not drape well, it may just do something weird. And so it's just like a quick test. Right. That makes sense. And if the fabric passes that test, then as a fabric R&D person, you should send the fabric out to a lab to get quality tested. They'll test it on all kinds of things like tensile and tear strength. Like, is the fabric going to rip easily? Because obviously you don't want to make pants in fabric that is going to rip once you, you know, like squat on the ground and it's going to like rip out of the knees or something. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So they do all those tests. And once it passes all those tests and it's good to go, the designer will work with the color design team to pick colors for actual sample yardage roll to be dyed up in. Then once that fabric's ready, they'll sew it up into actual samples that the designers will present to the buying team. And if it passes through all these stages and the, the buyers decide to adopt that style, then the fabric person would go back out to the mill, wrap up any final price negotiations if they need to. And then at that point, once it's adopted, it would get passed off to production team. And then the production team goes and secures the production yardage. And then fabric R&D's job is done, but you're, you're probably already working on like two, two other seasons of, at a time. Yeah. <laughs> you're not like taking the next month off. No, you're like, <laughs> cool. So just like, let me know when that's done. Let me know if you need something else. So it seems like you're kind of stuck between production and design. Yeah. You work with, you really do work with everyone. It is a cross functional role and it is collaborative. I mean, it's not a typically creative position, but depending on the brand, it can be. Mm-hmm. And also depending on the designer that is your counterpart, it can be creative. Um, I mean, one company that I worked at, it was not creative at all. And that's actually <laughs> when I started weaving because <laughs> I needed that creativity. Yeah, I bet. That would be so yeah. boring. But then at another company, it was very creative because I got to go to flea markets and like source vintage inspirational fabrics. And I got to go to Europe and, you know, really try to be creative in the fabric sourcing. So it really just depends. And then two, if you're a technical fabric R&D person, that is going to be 
possibly more creative and even more techie, like activewear brands or shoe companies that are, you know, developing their own technology, like the Flyknit from Nike, like companies that do like their own proprietary fabrics, like that's going to be super technical where you might need education actually in fabric science. Sounds like a real, a real educational curriculum. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, a good R and D person would understand costing, would understand what quality standards should be like, and they should also be able to anticipate any issues or drawbacks to certain fabrics. I mean, sometimes design team people will come to you requesting a certain fabric and you just might be like, look, I don't think that's like a good end use for what you're looking for. And let's try to, here's a substitute, you know? So you always have to (laughs) present lots of options and have backups and also good negotiating skills because you're really just emailing the mills and the factories every day. And, you know, when you were talking with one of your guests on an earlier episode and you guys talked about fabric pricing. I mean, that's the first thing to cut, right? That's a good skill to have, to be able to negotiate. You're going to have to be doing a lot of negotiating. Email communication with factories, super important. Time is of the essence. So if you're going to ask the mill one question, you might want to think of like five other questions to answer them because because of the time difference, they're not going to get back to you for 24 hours, right? So you have to think of like all the questions that might pertain to that fabric, just so that you don't waste any time, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to be organized, I guess. Yeah. Very organized. So you would be negotiating the costing on that fabric. Yes. Upfront. Production teams may also do some negotiating afterwards because they could possibly take a larger position on fabric. So they would buy they would buy more units. Maybe they're going to turn it into a program that they're going to deliver yes. for 6 months, right? Right. Makes exactly. Sense. Yeah, they may say like this is a really great fabric. We love it. Our customer loves it. We're going to buy like thousands and thousands of yards and so then at that point the production person would negotiate something like really big. Like a really big buy. So, do you pick the fabrics before the design? after the garment's been designed? It's a little bit of both. I guess it's it kind of is just happens uh, simultaneously. Most brands already have their established core fabrics that the designers already know they're going to design into every season. So those don't really change mm-hmm. too much. Then they usually leave a couple spots open for new ideas, and that's where you can squeeze in some new trends that you might have noticed at the fabric shows. It's a little of both. You know, I may come back from the fabric show and be like, oh my God, hemp is everywhere. Like this drapey knit hemp. And so then the designer may be like, oh, I I totally can design, you know, this great t-shirt into that. Or it can go the other way around where the designer comes to you with a silhouette and asks you for a fabric. So what do you do when you've like committed to a fabric the designs are in motion and the buyers are like, actually, I need this to be cheaper. <laughs> Cause I'm, I'm guessing that ha- it happens a that lot. Happens? Yeah. I mean, I've been on yeah. that side of it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You're probably asking for less, right? <laughs> always, always, you know, or it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, and it's not like the buyers are coming to the table. Like I would like to make everybody's life harder, but it's, it's like so, no. someone in management has suddenly decided that we need totally. to push our margin target out of the blue or like we're, 
trying to control our AUC, which is average unit cost. We want it to be lower. It always comes down to like some plan that's coming from above, but we're like already halfway through the project. (laughs) Right. Because it may be based on a whole season of garments, not just that one garment. And then you may have to relook at it and be like, okay, how can we get these prices down? So the first thing that I would do is go out to the mill and ask them like, can we, what's the best price we can get on this? Like, and I may ask them, you know, what's the best price or the production person might have told me like, okay, you need to get this to this, you know, down 50 cents a yard or something. So I may already have a target. So I will, um, ask that first because obviously everybody loves the fabric and we want to try to use that fabric so that, you know, we don't sacrifice the design or the integrity of the style. Right. If that doesn't work, um, then I would ask the factory agent or, or even the mill just to say like, okay, we love this fabric. We can't afford it. Do you have anything similar, but less expensive? And maybe we can go that way. Have you seen like a shift in the fabrics in your career? Because we've talked in previous episodes about how after the financial crisis, like 2008, 2009, suddenly everything became synthetic. My perspective is probably a little bit different because in 2012 is when I left the industry and started working for myself. So at that time, I started noticing more of the smaller brands because those smaller designers became my Mm -hmm. peers. And so I noticed that they were making garments out of 100% cotton or actual linen. (laughs) (laughs) Fancy. Yeah. So I noticed it in a different way. And I'm not sure though, if that was, I don't, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, I was reading something the other day that said that 60% of clothes that are made right now are synthetic. And that doesn't feel like how it was 10 years ago, you know, like I definitely Mm -hmm. would expect that from someone like forever 21 or, you know, any of those fast fashion people. But as we talk about time and time again, brands that you don't think of as fast fashion actually are totally, you know, whether they were before the rise of fast fashion or whether they adapted to it, like everybody is doing this. Most of my career, it turns out has been in fast (laughs) fashion, basically. (laughs) Same. <laughs> right, right. Um, even though I didn't think of it at the time. Yeah. Because maybe I was working somewhere that was twice as expensive as Forever 21, but it was the same thing. Absolutely. The same fabrics. So I do feel if you shop most mainstream retailers at this point, it's really hard to find non-synthetic clothing unless it's like a special collection that they're doing because they're trying to be eco. Right. I, I, I would probably agree with that. I mean, when I left – a job in 2011 and we were still making silk dresses. Wow. You know, pretty big, a pretty big company. Uh, I highly doubt they are making silk dresses now. No, I, I would be very surprised if they were. I think it's really, really hard to find silk clothing in 2020. Mm-hmm. You'd have to really search for it and pay a premium. Yeah. It just seems as though even brands that I thought of as being a little bit more high end, not like luxury or anything, but like a higher price point. Like even if we think about like J crew or something, I've seen those brands really shift into synthetics as well, mm-hmm. you know, for, for whatever reason. So do you, do you think there's like a trendiness to fabric? Totally. Yeah. I was trying to think of some trends 
from my past. I mean, it's been a while, but I started thinking about my first job when I worked in denim and it was for a a junior denim company. So like super trendy. And there was like the baby corduroy phase. Oh my God. (laughs) I remember that. And then so gross. Then opposite, there was like the, I don't know what they, the wide whale corduroy, like that's yeah. Chubby That's so dated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah, I thought about that. And then I mentioned the Cupro. They were, that was a trend. And then there was the Ponty pant. Oh, everybody. Everybody was yeah. trying to sell you a Ponty pant, a Ponty skirt. I mean, it's polyester. <laughs> and like really thick. Yeah. And yeah. kills immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So the Ponty pant, I mean, that's all about the fabric. Lace, I think, like goes in and out all the time. It has its moments. And then I feel like lately plaids and like small prairie floral prints. But I mean, I think this relates to your podcast <laughs> on the department with cottage core. Like, totally, it does. It's totally a part of cottage core. Yeah. So yeah. it's like that kind of homespun, homey, cozy look, plaids, little florals. I mean, I love it. That's half my wardrobe. So I'm down for yeah. it. <laughs> and then I also thought about maybe 10 to 12 years ago when quote unquote higher end, but really fast fashion companies <laughs> started offering vegan leather, but it's plastic. It's, it's plastic. <laughs> I know. And, I know. I, and I don't know when the turning point is when we started calling it vegan leather, because in buying, we would call it PU. Yeah. <laughs> PU. Yeah. yeah polyurethane, PU. you know, so totally. So I do feel like it's funny that previously, like if you if someone tried to sell you a fake leather jacket, you'd be like, gross. I'm not poor. You know, <laughs> totally. It was like, ew, this thing's going to fall apart as soon as I wear it. You, It was definitely looked down upon. Like who's the person who decided to rebrand it as vegan leather? They were genius. I guess they totally were. <laughs> but it's it's so gross. Like I I've read a lot of sort of like think pieces, like, is it better to buy a leather jacket or a vegan leather jacket? Mm. And ultimately, it's probably better to buy the real leather jacket. It's going to last longer. It's less disgusting for the environment. And most often like the hides of the cattle are left behind from the meat industry anyway. So Mm. it's like already exists. Right. I mean, hopefully it's the last leather jacket that you buy. Please it'll last you a lifetime. Whereas like a a vegan leather jacket will begin to shred. I've had that experience. I had one that I bought back in my nasty gal days and it began to peel after a few years. Oh, gross. I just can't even imagine how those smell. <laughs> you know what's weird about them? They somehow have this magical power to pick up the smell of cigarette smoke more than any other <laughs> any other textile out there. Like, I don't understand. You could just walk by someone who's smoking a cigarette and it's like you smoked a pack yourself. And so you constantly have to like air it out. <laughs> it's very a sig magnet. It's a sig magnet. Yeah. It's yeah. so, so gross. This isn't like a trend, but when I first started working, there was this cotton import quota. Was that, did you ever hear of that? No. Okay. So it was like 2003, 2004. And actually, President Bush imposed a cotton import quota on China in order to protect domestic textile and apparel business. And so they started mixing Raimi fiber, which is... Oh my God, I remember Raimi. I haven't heard about that in a million years. Yeah, it's like a cheaper linen. linen. So I worked at the denim company, so it was all like cotton Raimi denim. 
<laughs> you know, at the time I was young, I didn't really know even why the quota happened. So when I was researching it and I learned that it was tr- try to protect jobs here, like in 2003, I, I was kind of shocked mm-hmm. because like th- those were gone. Like textile production left this country so long ago and obviously it didn't work. I know it, it never does. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just cheaper to do it somewhere else. Yeah. And, and no, no law is going to change that. No. So I don't know. I, I remember that time period when the, when the cotton quota happened. And uh, I mean, since, since it's, it's no longer, but I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> that is interesting. And I do remember Raimi being in things all the time then, but you don't see that anymore. So it was sort of yeah. a trend, the Raimi trend. Yeah. 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 I think that idea of trying to like bring the jobs back is so ridiculous. I feel like it's just like a political platform because it's just not possible. Mm-mm. I mean, we'd have to rework our entire country to make that happen. We would have to train people in industries that they've never experienced before. We would need to build factories. Yeah. I mean, we'd have to change the way we as consumers buy things. We'd have to, I mean, and this isn't a bad thing, but we would have to accept that like twenty nine ninety nine is not a valid price point for a dress. Right. Right. You, you know, and we've all, I think about this all the time. Like, when was the shift? When did we suddenly want the cheapest clothes we could find? Like, there was a time where that would have been embarrassing, you know, <laughs> to be like, this shirt only cost me $4. Like, right, right. Right. It was like, you know, in junior high, you know, if I bought something at Kmart, I didn't want anyone to know about it because they were buying their stuff at like Banana Republic or Gap or something. Exactly. Exactly. So when, when was the change? Because... Teenagers now are wearing $4 t-shirts and they're like fine with it. I think it was Forever 21 because they made it cool to go buy a ton of cheap clothes, you know, that were like fashionable. And so if people complimented you on your clothes, you'd be like, oh, well, it's Forever 21. Ha ha. It was like $4.99. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You know, I, so, you know, Forever 21 went bankrupt mm-hmm. and they got bought by some like venture capitalists or something like that. No, they got bought by a company that owns malls. Oh, that's right. They did. You know, that all these mall com- owning companies are buying these brands. Like they bought Lucky too. Yeah. Same yeah. company, same company, which is- obviously Lucky and Forever 21 are in most malls. So if you own the mall, you need to make sure your stores stay there. Right. Right. So I had this idea. What if Forever 21 tried to like rebirth themselves as a sustainable company? Like if they suddenly were very eco-conscious and into ethical production and did all the things right. And it would be like ironic because they're the ones who really changed the way Americans shop. What if they were like, okay, we're rebranding and we only do good things now, but we're still forever 21. (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) Well, I think it would be like in your past episode where you were talking about how some brands have tried to shift and produce higher price items never works it just never works and the customer is just trained i think if forever 21 wanted to do that they would have to rename themselves (laughs) i know forever 21 doesn't sound very expensive how about forever how about forever 41 (laughs) that's great i don't even feel so bad shopping there (laughs) oh forever 21 the memories Yeah. I mean, we all did it. We all did it. I know. I mean, I, it was like the first time I went shopping at Forever 21, I felt kind of embarrassed. 
And that went away as soon as I came out with a big bag of clothes. Yeah. Then it was like, I'm sold. They had everything I needed. And just the thought of all, like if I close my eyes and try to picture all the clothes that came in and out of my life so fast during that time period, I mean, it it makes me nauseous. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, and we're all part of it. We all did it. I mean, maybe H&M was before actually, because H&M. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. And then Forever 21 was just like even more cheaper. And then you were like, oh yeah. my God. Yeah. I remember actually reading like, I don't know, like 10 years ago maybe how H&M was really struggling because they were more premium than Forever 21, but less <laughs> premium than like, you know, Gap or Banana. Right. And it's like in my mind, H&M and Forever 21 are the same. At this point, yeah. yeah. They're closer, but, at that, like, but at that time, it did. there was a difference. Mm-hmm. And, and I do remember thinking like, no, H&M is way nicer. Yeah. <laughs> so do you have any other like feelings about fashion and where we're going? Like, what would you like to see change? You know, I am really excited about all the small brands that have come up in the past like 10 years. And I think that a lot of the brands are doing some really interesting things, trying to work some sustainability into their lines. I really like how even big brands like Eileen Fisher or Patagonia offer like trade-in programs for credit towards new purchases. And Patagonia, I mean, is so kind of infamous now Mm -hmm. with their Renew line where they actually repair and redesign new styles using cut up pieces of their own clothing. And yeah, they're so, they're, the styles are really cool. And they've also hosted at different stores where you could like bring in your own Patagonia things that are worn out and they'll mend them for you. On my sweatpant hunt, I just discovered Mm -hmm. a brand last week, I think probably through my Instagram ads. (laughs) It's called Four Days and they claim to be a closed loop apparel business. That's what I hear. I've been hearing about them for a couple years. I mean... I'm just, I want to learn more about it. They say they take back all of your old clothes, like of their brand, Mm -hmm. and that they recycle it and make more of their own clothing. So I would like to know how this works. Do they send it off to another country? Mm -hmm. Because most of those kind of facilities aren't here anymore. But it seems pretty legit uh, from what I've read about. Yeah, yeah. I too have tried to find more concrete information about it and I I haven't. Um, I want to believe that it's true. They seem really legit. But like, you know how, or maybe you don't know this, but you can take a bag of clothes into H&M and get like a discount. Oh, really? Yeah. But you know, those clothes just go to the landfill or are incinerated. So (laughs) it's kind of like a scam. Yeah. I I guess it's like, I want to know more about that. Like they're recycling their fabrics into yarn, making yarn, I guess. Because it's really challenging. Yeah. To recycle, like fiber to fiber is really challenging. Yeah. Uh, it's, you can get really strange results with it. The yarn can have a strange hand feel or the color can be color. weird. Yeah, the yeah. color especially. I've seen some swatches of that. I was working with a client on a completely closed loop clothing line and some of the fabrics were really, really weird. They were like, they looked like they were slub but with like weird like green and orange fibers Mm -hmm. popping up in them. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, the technology is getting better. It is. And more people do it, the better it will be. But people whose opinion I trust in the world of sustainable fashion, really, they really back up four days and they believe it's on the up and up. 
Yeah. Well, that's good to know because I ordered some sweatpants from them. <laughs> good. Good. I'm glad you got some sweatpants. Yeah. My friend is uh, involved in a company called Awesome Techs, and they recycle fabrics and turn it into yarn. And I think they're doing it in Mexico, but they say that they promote a circular process and they use no water, no dyes, and no harsh chemicals, which is pretty amazing. And they've been around for a few years, but they just launched like a major footwear collection with Nike early this year called the Space Hippie Collection. And they did. Yeah, it looks, it looks yeah, good. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. I mean, I don't know. It's still like, okay, Nike, you're still asking people to buy new things, but mm-hmm. at least you're doing it with the sustainable material. So I think it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot about athletic footwear that is really problematic for the environment. Right. Everything about manufacturing it. So I still – Oh, totally. Yeah, it's, it's actually like one of the worst things that we wear. It's And it's also like virtually unrecyclable because everything needs to be disassembled in order to oh. send it off the right stream. And, you know, like no one's doing that. Right. Like there's not a company that does that. So – while I like this idea, and I think I would like to see more of it, I mean, I still don't think that that means everyone should go buy a pair of new sneakers right now. Absolutely. Like, I don't, yeah, yeah. Have you ever read that book, Cradle to Cradle? No. It's a really um, good book about, the like, sustainability and production and just things that you've never thought about. And I remember this one part that they talked about how the the rubber soles of your shoes wear, you know, it wears out onto the pavement. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. going somewhere. Right. Like, Everything does. It goes somewhere. When I quit working in the fashion industry and, you know, I was taken out of that environment where I needed to buy, buy, buy stuff all the time, my perspective shifted on the value of clothing. And I think it had to do with the fact that I was making things myself. And I also started to, my peers, like I said, were these small designers. And so because I started to understand more about what goes into making a garment and selling it, something that I might've thought was higher priced before when I worked in fashion fashion, I suddenly saw in a new light and I thought like, wow, that's a really good price. Like it's 100% cotton. They're making it with a small factory in our city and Mm -hmm. they could really trace all the steps of it. And so it seemed like a much better value to me and my perspective changed completely. Absolutely. I mean, there are things that are expensive because of marketing. Yes. But there are also things that are expensive. And I use expensive in quotes because it's not like they're $1,000, you know. They're expensive because the people making it got paid a fair wage and maybe they had health insurance. And like everybody who touched that product along the way has a good quality of life, you know. Yeah. And, And it's going to last that's the, that's like yeah. the one thing I try to like unpack constantly on the show is like if something's twenty nine ninety nine, what are the repercussions of that? Like what's really happening along the way? Because you know that the company that sold it to you is making a really high margin off of it. True. And it's not going to last. Like you're going to need to buy three pairs of those pants mm-hmm. Absolutely. in a year. I like that a lot of these smaller brands are doing kind of zero waste projects. My friend's have a company called Ace and Jig and pretty much every year they do a zero waste collaboration with artists where they'll send them a bunch of their production scrap. They design all their own fabrics and weave them in India and they're just stunning. So it's like kind of like a shame to have to throw them away. 
so they send the scraps to different artists and I've done a collaboration with them too. And the artists may like make a quilt or make a quilted jacket or patch their clothing. They're also selling like scrap packs so that people can just do whatever they want with them. And I think that's really I think that's awesome. awesome. And you know, it, yeah. it's promoting like mending your clothing and you get to use like all this production waste that would normally just be burned or thrown away. And then there's fabric mm-hmm. jobbers that will buy fabric rolls, excess fabric that fashion brands did not use. And this is really just for like small brands that still manufacture in LA or New York. They're not going to like ship fabric from overseas really, uh, unless they just have it. There's a really big one in LA called Rag Finders. And it's just like stacks and stacks of rolls of fabric and you can walk through and it's just dead stock fabric that you can make your line in. And obviously you can only do a small collection with it, but like Claire Vivier, she's a handbag designer. She just came out with these really cute dresses that she did with rag finders fabrics and this menswear line McGill. He does a lot of dead stock fabrics. So I think that's a really cool way to use fabrics that are just sitting there that people have already bought. And then also something in my own life that I try to do is, well, I always try to either buy used or buy from someone that I know, like a brand that I know. And, and like you had said in an early episode, like considering your purchase, maybe sit on it for a week before you push buy. <laughs> it's so funny how effective that is. It really works. Cause then you're like, <laughs> no. if you're not thinking about it in a week, you don't need it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I try to also kind of develop a, my own uniform. I mean, my, my work is, is pretty active. So like I need to wear clothes that are easy to work in. So I like to just try to create a uniform that I can, cannot really think about and wear every day. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the best way. I, yeah. I mean, I think it's hard and you know, it is hard. It is hard. Well, I also work for myself, so, you know, it's easy. <laughs> I don't have to go into a job where I have to have a different, I don't know. I mean, you can wear whatever you want, though, I guess. You you can. I think when you work in, in any sort of aspect of the fashion industry, there's always this drive that you have to, like, have a look all the time. And yeah. otherwise, people will be skeptical of your ability to do your job. I mean, I, I assume it's the same in design. It's definitely that way in buying. You know, when you go for an interview, it's 50% about how you look. Yes. You know, <laughs> it's like the pressure's on. I've talked about this with some other friends of mine, how working in the fashion industry also forces, like – a lot of grooming on you that like, I don't really care for. Like, I don't want to get manicures. I don't want to like shave my armpits, (laughs) you know, like I don't want to have to like get my hair cut all the time and all these other silly things. But you know, 50% of your job is looking good. It's, it's sort of silly, but buying clothes is part of that. Yes. You know, like you have to go in and have people ask you where you got it. Yeah, but I don't know. Don't you think that that's changing with like the younger generation who are kind of maybe breaking those rules a little bit? That's my hope. It is mine too. And I see it with Dylan and her friends. They buy more used clothes than anything. That makes me really happy. I mean, Mm -hmm. when you and I were young, we bought, I mean, I still buy a lot of used clothes, but when we were like teenagers and buying used clothes, it made us like punk or outliers, you know, it was like for alternative kids, but now it's like all of the kids and that's awesome. And I wish it would catch up to the people who were in their like 
late 20s and early 30s. I wish they would also be like, oh, yeah, why am I buying all this dumb stuff? Yeah, it's like retraining. I mean, my stepdaughter, she's 14, and she is always looking on like Depop and Poshmark. Like that's just her Mm -hmm, mm go-to. But I would – I've never even been on those sites or apps or whatever. Um, (laughs) Grandma. (laughs) But uh, I don't even – think that way. Like still, if I needed something for a specific end use, like an interview or something, I'd probably be like, Oh, I got to go to like J crew and go buy a blazer. But really I should, I need to train myself differently. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like there are other places to find that blazer. Yeah. I think it's going to involve everybody sort of holding hands. I think right now is a really good time to change the way you buy or shop uh, just because you can't really go anywhere anyway. (laughs) You have more time to reflect on it. But also, I think we're going to see a huge shift in what's left when this is all over. Mm -hmm. Because we see these companies going out of business every week, but they were going to anyway. True. You know, all, all the places that are laying a ton of people off were already having bad sales. Right. It wasn't. It was good. It was bound to happen. I wonder how things will change now that a lot of people who work in offices have been working for, from home for, you know, six months, mm-hmm. as they're starting to go back to work, like, is, does the dress code still apply? Do they, is it kind of looser? Especially if they're going, only going back in like one day a week or something. Yeah. I was wondering about that too. I've talked to some friends who still have their jobs and in fashion and they were, the universal thing that everyone is saying is that like, where to work, which is always the grossest category, right? <laughs> where to work clothing is like, it just plummeted. Like every everybody's just buying casual stuff right now. And so I do kind of wonder, like someone was asking me, you know, my expert opinion. And I was like, for the rest of the year, I wouldn't buy into anything that could be called where to work. Like mm-hmm. no blouses, mm-hmm. like no silky blouses or anything like that, or blazers. Like I think like loose layering pieces. I feel like this is going to be a real moment for flannel this year. <laughs> Cozy. Yeah. Flannel and big cardigans. And I mean, eventually people are going to get burned out on sweatpants, but I don't think we're there right. yet. I think the winter is going to be no. hard. I think it's going to be really mm-hmm. hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I w- that, that will be interesting to see how that goes. It's like hard for me to imagine because I've never had a job where I had to like wear business clothes. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Yeah, that wouldn't have worked for either of us. I know. And anywhere I've worked where I have to like buy into that idea, I'm so overwhelmed. I have like no idea what that means. Like I have to Google it <laughs> or, or talk to relatives who have like regular jobs. You're like, where do I buy slacks? Yeah. What, what's, what is slacks? <laughs> Wikipedia, slacks. Yeah. <laughs> pantyhose. Yeah. I'm sure pantyhose sales are really bad right now. Oh, man. Legs is really feeling it. Yeah. I mean, and like you were talking about high heel shoes or like dress shoes, like. Oh, I can't even imagine. Like I, I do wonder if we'll ever go back. We will, right? Because these pendulums swing, but I could see it being a long way off. Right. Like we're starting to appreciate things about our quality of life that maybe we didn't before. (laughs) Yeah. You know, being able to walk for 10 blocks. Yeah, and like the ability of like to not wear spanks and be able to breathe easily and yeah. move around with comfort and you know not wear weird padded push-up bras and just even I was reading about how basically and I believe this completely 
like the entire beauty industry is being changed so much by the pandemic where people are wearing a lot less makeup, but they're really going hard on skincare. Oh, right. Like self-care, wellness Mm -hmm. type of. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. And like, who's going to buy lipstick when you're wearing a face mask all the time? (laughs) You know? (laughs) I mean, who's going to wear lipstick when they're like on their couch all the time? I know, right? Or they're in nature walking and hiking. They're like, you know, they're doing things. Yeah. Well, and I love that too, because people who I have never seen show any interest in nature in the years that I've known them are like posting photos of themselves hiking. Oh, that's and I'm like, whoa, this is great. Because I think when you start to appreciate nature, like get out there and see it, you want to do better things for the planet. Yes. Yeah, I agree. So I like to be optimistic that this could be the the dawn of a new era. I think so. I I do think so. Hopefully some of like the kind of fashion rules that are stuffy will go away. Yeah. Like remember when you couldn't wear navy and black together, but now you can? (laughs) That was a big win for all of us. (laughs) I mean, I was pretty excited when we you could wear white shoes in the winter. Oh, I'm I wear white shoes 365 (laughs) days a year now. (laughs) It feels amazing. White shoes look good with black tights. Yes, they do. Yeah, they do. Well, do you have any other, you know, tips or suggestions you'd like to share with everyone? Look at what you're buying. Look at the content. Look at the labels. You know, you've repeated that many times and I think it's just going to start hitting with people, I guess. Too. Yeah, I'll just keep repeating it. Yeah. <laughs> Amanda told me to look at the label. Yeah. And now you know what some of the things on the label mean, thanks to Janelle. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today, Janelle. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. Hi again. Normally I would do a whole wrap up and share some more information here, but this episode is so long. (laughs) I think you're probably getting a little burned out. So I'm just going to end it here. Our next episode will be about fabric waste, so I'll be sharing some more information about fabric then. Trust me, I've got so much to tell you. I'm also pushing out the debut of the Ask Amanda segment. I know, I know, you're tired of waiting, but once again, when I recorded this episode with Janelle, I didn't realize it was going to be this long. I'm really just winging it over here. I'm working on an upcoming series of episodes about retail workers, their struggles, and their fight for fair wages and better conditions. If you've worked retail, and I bet a lot of you have, I would love to hear your stories. Basically, collecting your stories will help me frame out what I need to research and discuss, and I want to do this right. You know, I worked retail for a really long time. I know what a mess it is. I know you know what a mess it is. So let's come together and tell the rest of the world who somehow has escaped working retail how and why it needs to be better. You can either send your stories via email to clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or via Instagram where you'll find us at clotheshorsepodcast. If writing isn't your thing, you can also send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or computer and it can be as anonymous as you would like it to be. We can bleep out or cut out names of companies. I want to protect you as well. Thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Your feedback pushes us up the charts and into other people's ears. I mean, it's just time for us all to accept that algorithms run our lives, okay? 
And thank you for everyone who shares our content and posts about Close Horse on Instagram. It makes me feel so good every time you do it. If you aren't following us yet, you'll find us at Close Horse Podcast. I'm going through a really intense uh, 80s Laura Ashley phase in terms of my art direction. So you might want to check that out. (laughs) If you love the soothing sound of my voice, and who doesn't, you should check out my other podcast, The Department. I co-host it with my friend Kim. We talk about trends of all sorts, from fashion to social to food, and everything in between. It's really fun, and you know what? It gets pretty weird sometimes. (laughs) I'll share a link in the show notes. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our theme music and audio support. Bye.